Well, we know their names well, don't we? Men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Meriwether Lewis, Abraham Lincoln, Davy Crockett, George Patton, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the list goes on. Patriots, freedom fighters, men who have stood with their lives on the line and know what it is to risk all that they have to build and to develop a greater nation. I want to introduce you to three names, a couple of which you already know. We're in 1 Kings chapter 16 to lay the foundation, and we will end up in 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning as we take our final few minutes of our service today and we turn our attention to God's Word. This morning, I want to encourage us as God's people to think about how it is that we're to live in days like these. It is very easy to become caustic and negative When we look at our country, a country that we know was founded by men who understood, by and large, who God was and is, it takes nothing more than a a walking tour of our capital and to see chiseled in the marble and the stone of our greatest buildings, God's Word. And a reminder that there is a God and we are not Him and we must live humbly in His presence for His blessing and if we don't, there will be a consequence. It's difficult not to believe that we're not under some of that consequence as over half of our country burns up in drought. In our story today, we will be reminded that regularly in Scripture, when God wanted to get the attention of a people, He shut off the rain. How can it be that The leading officers of our country celebrate in our military a most heinous and sinful behavior in the the eyes of God and it is celebrated on our streets with parades and it is celebrated in our military as something that is good. We are reminded of Jeremiah the prophet when he said we are a people who call evil good and good evil. The highest office in our land celebrates false religion with great fanfare, enthusiasm, and public speeches, large dinners, huge gatherings. And when it comes to Christmas and Easter, there is barely a whisper from our leadership. Listen, it is easy to become caustic. It is easy to become negative. It is easy to become a naysayer. But listen, I remind you this morning... This is not our home, for one thing. We are pilgrims on a journey, and our city is a city that is built not by the hands of men. And it's a heavenly city. We have a greater cause. And as Jesus reminded Peter to put his sword away when he whacked off the servant's ear, it's beyond my mind that they watched Jesus bend over and pick up the ear and stick it back on, and they still put handcuffs on him. They're messing with somebody They don't know. We are believers in the Lord Christ and we are are called to a higher standard. And so I caution our congregation in these days when when we see sin on the rampage and it's difficult not to, to wonder what in the world's going on. Every time we open up our homepage to the news or open up a newspaper, 
There's another heinous, awful sin, the likes of which we've hardly ever heard of. And almost every week, somebody's eating somebody's ear or biting somebody in the face. People are gone crazy with sin. And our people don't know what to do about it. And our leaders lack the courage to bow their heads and humble their hearts and acknowledge that there is an almighty God who has set a standard for how we're to live. Well, I want to remind us as well that this is not the first time that God's people have experienced difficult times. In fact, most of what we have recorded in Scripture for us, in historical account, is God's people living in difficult days under very often godless and pagan leadership in our Old Testament and in our New Testament. Where we find ourselves in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, as we introduce ourselves to three names that I want you to understand clearly this morning a couple of which you know quite well. One I want you to take notice of. This is a time that is about a hundred, maybe, let's just say 125 years after the glory years in Israel. You remember King Saul, head and shoulders taller than everyone. The people begged for a king. They got one, and they got the taxes, and their sons drafted, and their daughters married to him, just like God said they would. And they didn't really want a king. They said, we do want a king. It's a reminder that you better be careful what you ask God for, because he just might give it to you. So there's Saul. He flounders, disobeys. God puts him on the shelf, raises up a shepherd boy, can't stand to see God's people running from an uncircumcised Philistine. It's his decisive moment, his defining moment. He stands up. God puts the crown on David. David has some ups and downs. He has some warts. He's got some flies in the ointment. But when it's all said and done, he's a man after God's own heart and the kingdom is expanded. He has a son who ended up from the beginnings of an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and Solomon is born. Solomon grows up and of all David's sons with his many, many wives... Solomon becomes the king. Solomon starts out well, continues to expand the kingdom because David had blood on his hands. God said you can't build the temple and Solomon is known for building the great temple of God. But then his heart was turned away to worthless idols and to wicked women with all of his wives. And he ends up a failure. Those are the glory years, Saul, David, Solomon. And then, much like you can imagine in our own country, there was a time of civil war. Ten tribes of Israel in the north. And from now on in our message, when we say the word Israel or the land of Israel, we're talking about the north. That's the Yankees. Ten tribes that broke away and were divided from the south. That's the confederacy, Judah. And much like in our own nation, if you want to find a good general, you have to go to the south to find him. And uh, it's, the, it's Judah that had a righteous king every once in a while, the most righteous of whom was Josiah the boy king. Remember when he discovered the word of God in the, in the rambles and rubble of the broken down temple as they were a land that disregarded God. He finds the word of God, elevates it, turns the hearts of the people back to God, destroys the high places of worship and idolatry, and God is able to bless them for seasons, occasionally, in the south. The two tribes called Judah. Judah is the south. Israel is the north. You need to know that in the north, there is just one series or sequence of wicked king after wicked king. And you're going to see in our story as we begin now and understand a little better who we're looking at, that they had one godless leader after another. We're in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. And the first thing I want you to see is their godless leader. Their godless leader. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, okay, that's the south, 
You need to know we're reading history in our Bibles, and so they will name the king, and they will name the region, and then they will name the king's father, so that in the, in the historical record, everyone knows exactly who we're talking about. And you will find, if you study this even in secular literature, that our Bible is very reliable. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. That's the north. And Ahab, that's the first name I want you to have in your mind this morning. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So we are now 125 years after the glory years of the kingdom. One bad king after another. And the bad king we're talking about this morning is Ahab. Ahab, the godless leader Ahab. I want you to let your eyes go up to... To verse 25, and notice his father who was the king before him. The time frame that we're talking about here is the middle 800s B.C. Middle 800s B.C. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 25 of chapter 16, this is Ahab's father. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. What a record! But it's going to be broken! And that's why, point number one in our lesson today, we have our godless leader that we meet, Ahab. I want you to see in verse 30, let your eyes go back to what we've already read, that Ahab did evil, number one. The second thing I want you to see is the last half of that verse, and it's he who does even more than all who are before him. And so we have not only one who did evil, but we have generational evil. And then I want you to see that he marries evil. Okay, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that would be idolatry and immorality, making light of the worship of false gods, the Canaanite pagan gods that we'll talk about in a minute. Specifically, we're speaking of Baal and Asherah here. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and he served Baal and he worshipped him. So the first thing we see in our story and the first name that we want to get down is our godless leader, Ahab. He did evil, verse 30. Second half of verse 30, it was generational evil. And verse 31, he married evil. The next thing I want you to see is the worthless idols. Worthless idols. Not only is he a godless king, but he introduces at even a higher level than they had known for hundreds, about a hundred years already, worthless idols. Goes way back to Solomon, introducing gods of the Baal. This is, an, this is an unbelievable thing, and it's what happens when you have a synchronization mindset. The idea that we can fit all religions together. We see that going on in our country today. There's not one religion that's more valuable or more important. We can all just get along. We can hold hands, knit daisy chains, and sing kumbaya. All religions are equal. That's not true. And it's interesting that when you claim to be an exclusive faith which Yahweh did when he laid down his law, the first thing he said is, you shall have no other gods before me. You should be careful how you use my name. Now, we don't go whack people's heads off because they follow some other god, as some other faith systems do on our planet today, and get a pretty big, huge pass for it overall. But these worthless idols were introduced way back with Solomon and all of his foreign pagan wives... And we have our wicked king Ahab. We need to let our eyes uh, move to uh, the beginning of chapter 17. And I want you to see number three, our fearless prophet. Our fearless prophet. So we've met our godless leader. His name is Ahab. We recognize that he has introduced worthless idols. I wanted to finish saying under worthless idols that 
you need to understand that Baal, and this is interesting in the context of where we're heading in chapter 18, to understand that Baal is a storm god. He's the god of the weather. He's the God who makes it rain. You also need to understand, in case I forget to say it, that when we get to Mount Carmel here in just a minute, a story that probably most of you know well, when we get to Mount Carmel, that he was that this day in Israel, when Elijah has the showdown with the false prophets of Baal, it's not just any Baal, it's, it's Carmel Baal. It's the Baal that they understand to be hanging out around Mount Carmel. He's the one that's responsible for the weather. It also doesn't take a whole lot of inf- uh, imagination to realize that the reason idolatry of the idolatrous worship of Baal is often connected with sexual immorality is because Baal, the storm god, is the one to whom they would pray and sacrifice even their babies in heinous worship. I can't imagine a people who would sacrifice their babies. Can you? What kind of a pagan people would that be? For convenience, for embarrassment or for the worship of a pagan god, what difference does it make? And they would pray to Baal, and Baal the storm god would then do what? He would rain out and inseminate the earth. And so in part of their ritual, it became very immoral, so that there were temple prostitutes, and it was just a horrible, base, debauched time to be alive. Asherah is also part of this, kind of the female end of it. And they were just horrible pagan gods. It's interesting for you to do some study in your study Bible or get online and develop your understanding of this a little bit. We go from our godless leader to our worthless idols to our fearless prophet. Chapter 17 now. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Now depart and get out of here and turn eastward and hide yourself at the brook Cherith. Okay, so here's what's happening. Our godless king and our worthless idols are so bad that God is raising up a fearless prophet It's interesting how all of a sudden Elijah's on the scene. He doesn't have much of an introduction. There's not much of a fanfare. He's just all of a sudden there. He's probably the most well-known of all the prophets of our Bible, essentially, um, because he's the, the most mentioned Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. You'll also recall that it was Elijah who was with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord Jesus when his disciples observed. And they glowed, remember? It was pretty interesting stuff. And then we'll also remember that this is the Elijah, the powerful man of God, who never died. He was evidently just translated up in a fiery chariot up into heaven. God said, just come home. Elijah had a powerful influence on the times. This is a time when prophets have great influence on the people. They had to because they had such unrighteous leadership politically that God had to raise up prophets to help the people survive. His greatest influence was on his young Uh, Disciple Elisha. And you know some of these stories and they're great. These guys had great power. You'll see that if you finish reading chapter 17. You know that he's by the brook Cherith. That's where he's fed by the ravens. You can picture a flannel graph story from Sunday school, can't you? Of Elijah sitting on a rock, taking a piece of bread out of a raven's beak. God feeds him. What's God doing? Because of Elijah's prayer, God has shut off the rain to get the attention of the wicked king with the worthless idols. And God wants it to go long enough to have 
a powerful impact on the king, his political framework, his mindset, his emotions, and the whole land. He wants to get everybody's attention. And so he's got to protect Elijah. So Elijah has to go camping for a while so that he doesn't get caught by the king. So God takes care of him. God then moves him. And that's where the story of the widow of Zarephath comes in. That's the bottomless jar of oil, the bottomless cup of flour. She has an only son. That son dies. And Elijah manifests God's great power in him by raising that boy from the dead. These prophets in this window of time with Elijah and Elisha is one of the few times in Scripture that we actually have these kinds of signs and wonders. This is also, I believe, a time when God is empowering and emboldening Elijah. Elijah, no doubt, is still growing spiritually. We know from James chapter 5 that Elijah is a man of like passion as us. We know from the story right here that he's going to slip off into deep depression. He's going to get discouraged. He's going to have self-pity. He's going to say, I'm the only one that's living for Jesus out here. Well, he didn't say Jesus, but I'm the only man of God out here. God's going to remind him, remind him later that I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. God always has his people everywhere. And it's a reminder of our third character that we're going to meet. Okay, we have our godless king Ahab. We have our fearless prophet. What's his name? Elijah. You're listening. I forgot, so thank you. We ne- the next guy that we have is God's man Obadiah. I want you to see it here. At the beginning of chapter 18, because now the rain has been shut off. The rain has been shut off. Our fearless prophet has been on the lamb. And there is a guy who is a God-fearing man named Obadiah who works in the king's house. Look what it says. After many days, verse chapter 18 is where we are now. The days, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah In the third year, that's the third year since it stopped raining. In James chapter 5, we find out that, that that the rain had been off for three years and six months. He says, go show yourself to Ahab. God says this to Elijah. Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Okay, you can only imagine after three years and six months of no rain, I mean a long time before that, before, he, before Elijah ever went to the widow of Zirifah's house, the brook Cherith had dried up from the lack of rain. So what you have is you have a country that is teetering on the brink of economic ruin. You have a country that is teetering on the brink of starvation. And I imagine that they have, Ahab is in the caliber of leadership that is taking food and making it into fuel and not drilling oil out of the ground when you got plenty of oil and you got people starving and then they're burning fuel in their tanks. Food in their tanks. What kind of nonsense is that? That's godless leadership that, that has no wisdom, that is so far gone that they are, they are uh, unable to think clearly about the very resources that God has put in front of their face. What God is doing here is he's showing the king that he is a powerless king. And so there's the powerless king to to turn the rain back on. And I want you to see, and then Ahab called, verse 3, chapter 18. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, parenthetically, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. 
And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps you may find grass and save the horses the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction and Obadiah went in another direction. And as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face. And he said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? Okay, so three years, six months has gone by. The land is dried out. Ahab's pulling his personal staff together. He tells Obadiah, who we understand from the writer of this historical account, is a, God, is a man of God. This is probably not the prophet Obadiah who wrote the book Obadiah in our Bible. Probably not. And so he's on the king's staff working in the king's court. That's another illustration of how God always has his people strategically placed, doesn't he? God has his people everywhere. Well, what this ends up being is a, a, little bit of a, a little bit of a back and forth banter between Elijah and Obadiah because as Obadiah is out looking for green grass and there is none and there is no water, Ahab, excuse me, Elijah is walking around and Obadiah and Elijah, according to God's strategic plan, connect. Obadiah recognizes Elijah and Elijah says to Obadiah, go tell Ahab that I'm here. He said, you go tell Ahab yourself said, I'm not going to go tell him that I saw you. He'll cut my head off. You see, there had been a huge search going on for Elijah trying to get a hold of him. Well, we have to fast forward and we see that the powerless king who cannot turn the rain back on ends up meeting with Elijah the prophet, the fearless prophet. The wicked king and the fearless prophet now are connecting in verse 17 of chapter 18 when Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, Is it you, who tru you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, that would be 850 total prophets, who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was a horrifically wicked woman. She's going to end up getting thrown off a wall and eaten by dogs later on. But that's another story. Did you notice what we said about Obadiah earlier? That as Obadiah is managing the king's house, Jezebel is on a campaign to wipe out all the prophets of God out of the country. Because they can't find Elijah, Jezebel takes over. And you find, as you study this story, by the way, that regularly Ahab capitulates to, to wicked Jezebel's leadership. It's interesting even to this day that you name a donkey Jezebel. You don't name your daughter Jezebel. You ever notice that? Not too many Jezzies out there. She's a wicked, horrible woman. Wore a lot of makeup, by the way. Um, that was just for information. <laughs> it says so in the Bible. <laughs> I better get back to preaching. <laughs> what I wanted to point out is that Jezebel got on the rampage, starts wiping out prophets of God... Obadiah hears the conversation at the supper table and he starts sneaking out prophets out in the bush, takes a hundred of them, divides them into two groups of 50, puts them in caves and saves them. I like to think that somehow he pilfered from the king's cupboard and got bread and water and took it and fed him when he fed him. You can discuss the ethics of that later, but God had his man and God used his man to preserve his people. 
Well, you know the big showdown that's coming now, don't you? All 850 of the prophets of Baal and Asherah meet. They meet on Mount Carmel. The Carmel Baal is there. This God of the storm, this God of rain. And Elijah looks him in the eye. First, First, he looks the king in the eye. And when the king says, you troubler of Israel, the fearless prophet says, wait a minute, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. There is a time to speak the truth in love, isn't there? Elijah does it. He doesn't punch the king. Notice that. But he looks him in the eye and he tells him he's a wicked man and that he's the problem. You're the problem. Go ahead. He gathers the whole people of Israel. He challenges the people to stop vacillating in their synchronism. Evidently, they had not totally abandoned their faith in Yahweh, but they were trying to fit it all together with the gods of Baal. Maybe somehow that's what our Christianity looks like. I don't know. Trying to fit things that don't fit together. And Elijah challenges the people, stand up today. If God is God, serve Him. And if Baal is God, serve Him. They set up an altar for all these 850. It must have been a sight to behold. Some of you have been there on Mount Carmel where they think this happened. They set up the altar. They slaughter a calf, put him on there. And then Elijah says, hey, let's up the ante here a little bit. Run down to the, down to the shore of the Mediterranean. They get barrels of water and they dump water on it. I don't know where they got the water, but probably down there. And dumped it on there. Where are they going to get water except the sea with this kind of a drought? And they dumped the water all over, soaked the thing, soaking wet. And the false prophets dance around and carry on all day. And about halfway through day, in the heat of the day, Elijah's there leaning against the tree, got a straw in his mouth, got his legs crossed. And he says, shout a little louder, boys. Maybe your God's off meditating somewhere. See, the idea there that's interesting in the nuance is that that's where he was supposed to live, is up on that mountaintop. The idea was that they were on the top of Mount Carmel where this Carmel Baal lived. And he wasn't home. He wasn't listening. Shout a little louder. Maybe he's meditating. It even implies maybe he's off relieving himself. The, the ESV uses the word. The idea is he's off going to the bathroom somewhere. He's not paying attention to you guys. He's got more important things to do. He's in the bathroom. Well, what we have is an illustration of a powerless king And lifeless gods, don't we? The lifeless God of Baal. He can do nothing for them. Well, then it's Elijah's turn. And you know what happens. Elijah prays. He prays, as the King James says it, an effectual fervent prayer. That shut the rain off. I'd say he prayed another effectual fervent prayer. Puts his head down between his knees. Cries out to God. Sends his servant to go look at the horizon. All of a sudden there's a cloud the size of a man's hand. It comes in. Next thing you know the skies have broken open. And the water is pouring out of the sky. Three years, six months. Don't you think the people came out of their homes and just went. (sighs) And God demonstrated his power over powerless, worthless idols. That could do nothing. If you read the end of the story and it disturbs you that they put him to the sword down at the brook Kishon and slaughtered all those prophets, it's a throwback to Moses' instruction of Deuteronomy 18.20. You can look that up later. In conclusion, what do we get out of this story? We've had three characters. A wicked king, Ahab, a fearless prophet, a humble servant, Obadiah, What part of this story encourages us? What's some instruction? How do we then live these days? First of all, I want to say that I get out of this story, number one, that it is a time for bold spiritual leadership. 
At the least, don't you see in this story bold spiritual leadership? A fearless prophet who looks the king in the eye and tells him, this is the way it is. I wonder if there's any sons of Elijah or Obadiah out there today. Are you afraid? Are you a coward? First and foremost, remember Paul's instruction, Romans 1.16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We have this interesting opportunity to live in a country where we, the citizens, are the basic, foundational, and most fundamental part of the whole governmental system. So we cannot live separate from our own system. Or it becomes something that it was never intended to be. First and foremost, live for Jesus. But secondly, be fearless as a citizen. What are you embarrassed of? Why would you be embarrassed to call sin, sin? Why would you be embarrassed to say something is wrong? They're not embarrassed to say that it's right when it's wrong. They got everything upside down, not us. So why would we be ashamed? Speak gracefully. Speak with, with words seasoned carefully with grace and lovingly. But don't back down from anyone. And don't alter your convictions. And never, ever, ever be embarrassed to know and to live the truth. Why would that embarrass you? They're not embarrassed to march in the streets naked, as my Uncle Harold would say. Why would I be embarrassed to walk down the street with a Bible in my hand? Secondly, I think that this is a time for shrewd individual entrepreneurship. The first one is, it is a time for bold spiritual leadership. Secondly, in Obadiah, I see a lesson that it is a time for shrewd individual entrepreneurship. What do I mean by that? I think that it's really great that that Obadiah, who worked for the king, didn't say, I can't do anything. If the king finds out, I'll lose my job. I don't know what to do. No, he was shrewd, and he figured a way out to get the word out ahead of Jezebel's cronies when they're going out to kill all the prophets, and Obadiah gets the word out. He figures out how to put them in caves. He rounds up at least a hundred of his buddies. He reminds Elijah that, by the way, I'm a good guy. I saved a hundred of your boys. And you see that in there. I referenced just a minute ago that our political system, at its most foundational point, requires that the citizens be involved. This is a great time for spiritual and political entrepreneurship of citizens. What is it that you can do? What part can you play to encourage your neighborhood? What can you do to reach out to people around you? And can I remind you that always, 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 the way we create change is from the inside out, not the outside in. We are not suffering from a lack of education in our country. Do you know that? It's not just like we got to educate our young people and then they'll stop doing this. No, it's that they have sinful hearts that have a bent for wickedness. And when they, even when they see God, they'll shake their fist at him. And they're lovers of darkness because their deeds are evil. Our job is not to take a big club and go beat up people. Our job is to get out there and to figure out one kid and one adult and one girl at a time and how to lead them to Jesus Christ and one at a time change a heart, one at a time change a heart, one at a time change a heart. And let's see the dominoes fall. We've had great awakenings on our country in the past. We can have a great awakening again. Thirdly, I want you to tell, uh, I want to emphasize, uh, similar to number two, and I, I, I almost am going to leave this out, but I'm not going to. It is a time for clear political membership. It is a time for clear political membership. 
I want to be careful how I present this and how I think I got it out of the text. But here's my point. This is with Elijah. Elijah called the people to identify themselves as to what their values were. Elijah looked at the king and told him, you're wrong. Elijah didn't say, I know that you have a different world view than I have and that your political framework is a little different than mine. Elijah looked at him and said, you are the troubler of this land and you are wrong. Elijah didn't hit him with his fist or hit him with a club, but he clearly differentiated himself from the political system of the day. Now, one of the things that we have going on this day is a simplification of this. There is no perfect political system, and I am not up here to sign up people for any political party. But I'm here to tell you that there are certain aspects of certain political parties that it's a no-brainer. God's people can't identify with it. And so this is a day to differentiate yourself. This is a time to clearly, politically stand with anybody who's doing righteousness. I think you're scared that we're going to lose our tax-exempt status right now. (laughs) You're scared your pastor's going to end up in jail. Three squares a day, cable TV, I can handle that for a few months. Let me give you a, a real illustration of what's coming in the fall. And we will probably talk about this again at least one time. We have in our county, in Jefferson County, we have a leading attorney in our county who is an open homosexual who is running for West Virginia State Senate. Opposing him is a man who has great biblical worldview. I don't know that he's a born-again man, but he has a biblical worldview overall. He stands for righteousness. How could God's people not vote for that guy? When the other guy's agenda has everything to do with destroying what godly Christian homes are all about. That's what I mean is the time to differentiate. It's a time to identify. It's a time for clear political membership. And I use that with quotes around it. The idea there is to get involved and it kind of rhymed with my first two points. It is a time for bold spiritual leadership. It is a time for shrewd individual entrepreneurship. It is a time for clear political membership. And finally, and really foremost, even though it's last, it is not least. It probably should be the top one on the list, but I wanted to end with this on our minds. Number four, it is a time for strong, intentional praying. Strong, intentional praying. Certainly, at the very least, 1 Kings chapter 18 is about prayer, isn't it? It's about prayer. And it's about a man of God who prayed. Now, I understand that this was a remarkable time and an, an individual that was raised up by God for a specific purpose. But clearly in James chapter 5 and verse 17, it says there clearly that Elijah was a man like us and he prayed fervently and God answered his prayer. At the least... We need to be fervent prayers. Because we pray, most of us, but we're not very good at fervent prayer. I don't really understand that, and it's not works that I'm promoting. It is some kind of a spiritual thing that God has ordained, that God's people be on their face in humility, in fervent prayer, and He hears. 
And he answers. How do God's people respond in this day and age? Not with a sword. Peter was already told to put it away. Not with a club or a fist. Elijah didn't demonstrate that at all. But courageously standing for, speaking for the truth and on our face in prayer and humility before a holy God, begging him to spare his hand of judgment on this country that deserves every bit of it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you give us clarity in our thinking as to how we are to live in a, in a lost and dying generation? Father, even though we haven't talked about it so much this morning, would you reignite in us a passion for the gospel and the change that it brings in people's lives? Would you overwhelm us with the reality of the seriousness and the gravity of these days so that we would be on our face in humility praying? Father, we would ask that you would spare our nation, that you would turn the rain back on across the Midwest, throughout the rich, fertile farmlands of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Nebraska, Oklahoma. Father, we need you, and our leaders need you, and even though they don't recognize it, they do. And I pray that you would soften their hearts, take the scales off their eyes, and somehow, would you... Would you stir the hearts of your Obadiahs that are inside the beltway and help them to make great inroads, both in the preservation of your people and in the evangelization of the pagans. Father, would you help us here locally as we live in the countryside to be good neighbors, to be the kind of people who have a cool drink of water for those in need and do it in Jesus' name. And that you would give us a love and a broken heart for people who don't even know that they don't know how much they're offending you. Help us, Lord. We need it. Commit ourselves to you. Thank you for your great faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.